Thanks, Raj. Well, good evening. That was, that was the worst thing that's ever happened. Wow. Good evening. Hello. That's a bit better. It'll do. Hey, um, how good was the uh, trip down memory lane with Adrian just now, that old picture of him? Uh, I remember meeting Adrian when he looked like that. I was a year 11 kid, and I'll say this, I was a fairly mature-looking year 11 kid. Um, and uh, so I met him, hung out with him at church, chatted a few times, and he was real friendly to me. And then, uh, and then I was at a scripture class assembly thing as a year 11 kid. I'm at school in school uniform, and Adrian's there as part of the team doing this thing. And he's coming in my school, talking about Jesus in my school. And I walked up to him in my school uniform. I was like, hey, man, what's up? And he was spun out. And he was like, what is going on? He thought I was like 25 or something. And there I was in school uniform. 30 at least, conservatively. That's right. Uh, so anyway, good times, good memories. But hey, we've got a great, enormous passage in front of us here tonight. Um, yeah, let, let me pray. Let me pray for God's help as we dive into what is a tremendous part of God's Word. So let's do that together. Oh, Father God, I thank you so much for the treasure that is in front of us tonight. And Father, um, we're just reminded that man does not live on bread alone, uh, but on every mouth that comes from the Lord. And so, Father, please feed us by your word tonight. Lord, would this be food for our souls? Would you build us up by it, encourage us with it, and cause us to see you clearly and what it is that you're doing in the world and in our lives? Amen. Well, at the very heart of this passage is something that I reckon a whole bunch of you guys will possibly be a bit put off by. You might recoil from it when you hear it. Discipline. I don't mean self-discipline, uh, but the, when one person disciplines another. Now, at best, lots of people just don't like the idea of someone disciplining them. At worst, people might even hate it. You might even think of that as an immoral kind of thing to do, discipline bringing hard things, even pain, for another person's growth and learning. It's actually something that's quite divisive in our world today. I don't know if you know this, but physical discipline, smacking, is now something that's been banned in Scotland and Wales and a whole bunch of other European countries. And although it's legal here in Australia, many people hate the idea of painful discipline. It sounds old-fashioned and unloving. Uh, well, here's the question that we're confronted with in this passage tonight. What about God? Does, does God metaphorically smack? Does God bring pain for the sake of teaching us? Now, the somewhat shocking answer to that question is, is right there in verse 7. Yes. Have a look at verse 7. It says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. And so when you understand it rightly, this verse is saying something quite shocking. God brings hard things into our life for the sake of our discipline to teach us. Now, just like some of you may not like the idea of parental discipline, uh, many of you, I know, will come to this verse, this chapter, and actually be <laughs> a little bit on guard, painful to hear these things even, perhaps Perhaps to you, it sounds like God has been made out to sound like some sort of a bully. He's harsh. And so when hard times come in life, is God still good to me at that point? Does God have it in for me when the hard times come? Does God still love me? Because it can feel like He doesn't. Well, here's the thing. 
What can seem like some heavy, perhaps harsh words here in this passage tonight are actually a precious treasure, (laughs) pearls that we need to grab hold of, that we desperately need to hear to survive. Friends, you will not make it in the, you will not make sense of this life, you will not make sense of suffering, you won't make sense of God unless you understand the beautiful truths held out in this passage tonight. Now, God has got an amazing treasure for us here in this passage, if we could wrap our heads around what He has for us here. And so, can I invite you to to have the courage to kind of put aside your preconceptions about things like discipline and all that kind of stuff, and listen to God's good voice to us here tonight. Now, this this letter, this sermon, comes to a group of people who are under fire. They're they're right in the midst of it. Chapter 10, verse 32, it it talks about their early days as Christians where they suffered all sorts of persecution. Chapter 10, verse 34, it talks about how their property was confiscated and then they, they submitted to that willingly. Imagine, as a Christian, having everything you own physically taken from you because you're a Christian. That's the kind of thing they're up against. Verse 36, chapter 10, verse 36, he calls them to persevere. Chapter 10, verse 39, he says, don't shrink back, keep, keep faith in God. Chapter 12, verse 3, he reminds them of Jesus, who suffered opposition from sinners. And then we come to chapter 12, verse 4 here, and he, he kind of starts off with a pretty, bit of a harsh word for them. Have a look at verse 4, he says, in your struggle against sin... You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, I think when he says, in your struggle against sin there, he's actually talking about in your struggle against sinners, sinful opposition. The same thing he was talking about the verse above at verse 3. But unlike Jesus, who did shed his blood, they've not yet had to shed their blood. And so he's saying, keep going, don't give up now. Now, the second part of the the kind of correction he has for them is in verse 5, where he says, have you forgotten the Word of God to you? Have you forgotten what the Bible says to you? And then he reminds them of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. He says, "Uh, have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, there's that word again, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one He loves and He chastens the one, everyone He accepts as a son. He says, don't lose heart. Know this, God loves you. He's treating you as a son when you face discipline. Now, He actually uses three different words there to talk about discipline. The first is just that broad word of discipline. In general, it just means to instruct someone for their good with positive or negative reinforcement, with the goal of teaching them for their good, discipline. Then he says, rebuke. (laughs) It's a strong verbal correction to call someone out with words. And then he, he says, in fact, God chastens everyone he accepts as a son. And that's the ESV, if you've got an ESV, says punishes. Uh, It means to correct someone, even perhaps with physical punishment, for their learning and correction. And so the writer here is reminding them of what? Of God's Word in the Bible. And he's saying, remember what you should know from the Bible already, Proverbs chapter 3, God is treating you as His children. Have you forgotten what you should already know from the Scriptures? Now that's actually an important, that's a quick reminder for us, isn't it? We can't be helped by what we don't know. We can't be encouraged by what we've already forgotten. Remember what God's Word has to say to you. 
wherever it comes at you, as you hear God's word, hold on to it. Drink it down deep. Pray God that that's what he does for us here tonight. And so verse 7, we come to the central command in this passage. And here's what we're going to see here. Hardship is the loving work of God in our lives. Have a look again at verse 7. It says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? He says, endure hardship as discipline. Take it that way. Now, the particular hardship this group of Christians were facing was being persecuted for being Christians. We've just heard about that. Uh, But the word hardship there is just the broad word for hard stuff. Endure the hard stuff in life as discipline. Whether it's suffering for being a Christian, as these guys were, or whatever else comes your way, endure it as discipline from God. Now, what does he mean by discipline? As in, what is he... What kind of things is God doing in a person when he disciplines them? What what does it look like in a person's life? Well, let's first of all be really clear what it isn't. This is not God pouring out his anger at a Christian's sin in judgment of their sin. Now, how do we know that's the case? Because, friends, if you're in Christ, if you are a Christian, Jesus has already faced God's anger at your sin completely. It's a done thing. In fact, we saw this just a couple of weeks ago. Come back into chapter 9 and see it really clearly there. Chapter 9, verse 27, this is the fate of all people. Verse 27, he says, just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, face the anger of God, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he'll return to, to the resurrection. Did you catch what's happened if you're a Christian though? (laughs) You will not face judgment for your sin because Christ is the sacrifice who faced it for you. And so if you're outside of Christ, if you've rejected him or not yet put your faith in him, you will face God's anger at your sin. But if you're in Jesus, if your trust is in him, God is no longer angry at your sin. There's no punishment left to be paid. And so whatever's going on in hardship or suffering, it is not the wrath of God being poured out on you because of your sin. And so what could it be instead? What what is the purpose of this discipline? Well, there's a whole bunch of things that God could be doing as he disciplines you as his child. Let me give you three examples from the Bible very quickly. It could be corrective. Uh, Think of King David. You remember King David? Uh, He sinned, he actually stole another man's wife and plotted her husband's death. And in response, God brought some serious correction for King David. Uh, His life on earth became a, a hot mess. He lost his son politically, his kingdom fell apart, his family fell apart. His life descended into all sorts of chaos, which God brought as discipline. But it wasn't him pouring out his wrath on David. It was a correction. And if you read Psalm 51, you'll see the result that it had in David's life. It drove him to his knees. He repents with the blessed hope of forgiveness from God. Psalm 119, many people think David wrote this. Psalm 1971 says, It's good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees. So God's discipline can be corrective. 
not judgment poured out on your sin, not punishment, but hardship brought to correct and teach. Second, God's discipline could, could be uh, preventative. It could be preventing or shaping you in some way. Now, this isn't a response to something you've done, but rather something to keep you from sin. Um, come very quickly back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 with me and have a look at this. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul talks about having a thorn in his flesh and it's there to keep him humble. Have a look at 2 Corinthians 7. Halfway through the verse there it says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, oh sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Maybe just listen at this point, sorry guys. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord, uh, take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now we don't know what this thorn in Paul's flesh was, that's a metaphor of some sort, but Paul knew why it was there. It was to keep him humble. It was to keep him weak so that his trust would be in God who is mighty and powerful so that God's power might be displayed in Paul's weakness. So God's discipline can even be preventative to keep you on a track that would honour God. Third, God's discipline can be educational. I don't have a better word, sorry. Uh, But this is exactly what we saw last term in Job. If you were with us, you'll remember why Job suffered it wasn't because he was some rotten sinner that God was punishing. In fact, that was the mistake his friends made. They assumed that what happened to Job was because of Job's sin and they were wrong. They were dead wrong. Instead, God was doing two things. God was, first of all, bringing glory to himself through Job's faithfulness and he was teaching Job. He was showing Job his glory. So that if you remember the end of the book, chapter 42, verse 5, Job cries out at the end of it all and he says, My ears had heard of you, God, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I repent in dust and ashes. His soul was educated. That was the fruit of Job's suffering. And so God could be doing any number of things in his discipline correction, prevention, education. Now, I suspect there's many more things that he could be doing. But in all of that, his motivation is love. As a father who loves their child, God is treating us as his children, verse 7. And so, friends, the question for us tonight is, how will you process hardship and suffering when it comes for you? Don't jump to wrong conclusions in the dark, silence of suffering. God's lost control. He's taken his hand off the wheel and so this tragedy's come. No, that's not what's going on. In all things, God works for the good of those he loves, who love him. Brothers and sisters, God is ruling in every season of your life. God's punishing me, you might say. I've done something terrible and so now his anger's been poured out on me. No, As surely as Jesus went to the cross in your place, so you can be sure that you are not under the the anger of God at your sin. God's abandoned me. He doesn't care enough about me to stop what's happening. No. In dark moments, it can feel like that, can't it? But he hasn't. 
Instead, Hebrews 12 tells us that He's doing something wonderful in your life. So as hard as it can be to comprehend, this is the loving plan of God for your good, your discipline. It's His costly, beautiful teaching and instruction. Now next, the writer, as we read on back in chapter 12, Hebrews, as we read on, the writer kind of runs through this extended example, this metaphor, to help us appreciate this truth and see the beauty of God's discipline. And he uses the example of a loving, earthly father and their discipline. Now, our problem is that for for many of us, our picture of parental discipline is just, it's all banged up. And so this metaphor often just falls on deaf ears for us. We just don't get it. First of all, experientially, for you, you just may not have experienced this sort of discipline from a loving father, whether it's because your dad was just absent completely, not around at all, didn't care, or worse, because you perhaps um, experienced some sort of terrible abusive discipline, some twisted version of this. Second, it might just be that you're, you're philosophically against this. You just don't think this is how parenting should look. And so before we understand what we're learning about God here in this passage, I think we need to spend some time on this for a second, loving earthly parental discipline. So have a look at the passage there and notice a few things. First of all, verse 7, notice the assumption of discipline. Second half of verse 7, he says, what children are not disciplined by their father? Verse 8, notice the absence of discipline is the opposite of love. Look at verse 8, if you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, he assumes, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. And verse 9, notice that the end goal of discipline, it's good in the long run, it has good results, it leads to the children respecting their father. Verse 9, it says, moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. Now, like I said earlier, this word discipline here in this passage, it just means, in the broader sense, it means instruction, teaching from from God or from an earthly father. It's the same word in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. It's a bit of a famous verse. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Quote that to your parents if you want. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So, it's the word for teaching, instruction. It can be positive with positive enforcement and encouragement and it it can be negative with with things like words of rebuke or even chastisement, which means can mean physical discipline. So what does this sort of loving discipline look like in a a, a right context in a family? Well, it's tricky, right? But a, a wrong picture of it is, I'm the parent, I'm angry, what my kid has done has inconvenienced me, they're annoying me, I hate what they're doing, and so I punish my kid in anger because I don't like what they're doing to me. This sort of discipline, it makes me feel better and I take it out on my kid. Loving discipline does not look like that. Instead, I love my child and so I get up off the couch and I help them to see the problem with their behaviour and I appropriately correct them perhaps even punish whatever wrong thing's going on. It may or may not be physical. I think the Bible definitely permits physical punishment, but I don't think it insists on it, as if that's the only lever a person can pull, but it does insist on discipline for children. But 
I'm not doing it to, to avenge myself because my kid's done something bad to me. I'm not doing it because they've made me angry or because it's going to make me feel better or whatever. For a parent, loving discipline is, I've got to say, it's usually really inconvenient. It's hard work. It's time-consuming. Notice in verse 11, no discipline is pleasant at the time. And that's true for the kid, but it's also true for the parent. The kid doesn't like it. And so as a parent, that means you risk getting yourself offside with your kid. You call them out for what's gone wrong and you don't get to be their bestie anymore. It's personally costly. And so parental discipline done right is actually a deep love act of love for the child. Now, I realise a lot of you guys aren't at that stage where you're worrying about how you're going to discipline your children yet. But let me speak to us who, people who could be in a whole bunch of different places tonight with this. First of all, for those of you who've not experienced this sort of loving parental discipline, could be you find this passage really hard, hard to even get your head around what, what it's even saying because, you've, because of absent parents who haven't really cared enough to worry about this um, or, or it could be that you've, you've seen the worst side of this, a, an abusive version of this. And if, friends, if, if that's the case, can I say, I'm so sorry that that's been your experience of discipline and if you're finding this passage hard, I get it. Uh, but can I say, don't write this passage off and the, the things that we're learning here about God, don't write that off because you've not seen this in your earthly fathers or mothers. Uh, instead, look to your, your, your heavenly father who is perfect, who does love you so deeply. He'll never let you down. He loves you. He cares about you. He's full of kindness and compassion. He always acts in your best interest. He never fails. Second, on the flip side, many of you may have experienced um, imperfect but loving parental discipline from parents who've done this for you. And if you've got parents who've done this well in your life, it won't have been perfect, they would have got it wrong a bunch of times, but if, if they've done it well, can I encourage you to do something a bit, a bit obscure from tonight? Consider thanking your parents. I think I need to do that this week. I need to thank my dad for the discipline he gave me in my life. And so get past the weirdness, use this sermon as an excuse. If you want to do this and be like, look, it came up in church, and I've been thinking about it, I actually want to say thank you. If, if, that's, if that's your context, I encourage you to do that. With the power of retrospect, if you've got parents, you look back and you've gone, they've done a good job, well, thank them. Third and finally, though, guys, this may shock you to hear, but one day you might become a parent who has this responsibility yourself. This could be you. And so if that is the case, when that is the case, avoid the mistakes in discipline. Don't make it about you and your anger and frustration. Do the hard and costly work of loving your children in this way. Okay, so there's our picture of loving parental discipline, earthly parents. What does the writer want us to get from all this? We understand his context, what he's talking about, but what's the point of the example? Two things, we'll finish on these. They're big though. First one is this, if you're a child of God, expect discipline from God. That's actually the point of verses 7 and 8. Look at it again. He says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters. 
He says it twice. He says it positively. (laughs) What child isn't disciplined by their father? They all are. And verse 8, if you're not, it means you're actually not a legitimate son or daughter. He's not treating you as one who will get an inheritance as a true son or daughter. And so, friends, if you're a Christian, expect it. And when it comes, be ready to process it clearly with clarity. Now, it's good to understand why pain is coming, isn't it? At a real basic level, it's good when you know what's going on. I've got some little kids, and when I take them to the doctors to get needles, when they were really little, the poor fools had no idea what was going on. So they're just like along for the ride, and I'm like, hey, this is going to be fun, come with me. And then some guy comes along, and he shoves this needle in their arm and gives them the injection that's actually good for them, and they're just looking at me like, crying tears of betrayal. Why have you brought me to this maniac, Dad? Now, as you grow up, you know what? The pain's the same. It's not like needles get not painful when you grow up, but the difference is you know why it's there. It's saving you from much worse pain. When God brings hardship and pain into your life, think rightly about what's going on in that moment. Don't think of it as some sort of a whip that God's beating you with. See it as the surgeon's scalpel. It cuts deep, it stings, but it's got a purpose. The blade saves, it's not just there to cause pain. Expect discipline and when it comes, regard it as discipline from your loving Heavenly Father. That's the command, he says, endure it, as discipline. Think of it that way. And that's what it looks like in practice. This is actually about how you think about it when it comes. The outcome will be the same. Hard stuff's going to come. How are you going to process it? How will you think about it when it comes? You ever notice that the exact same circumstances, hard stuff in a person's life, persecution for being a Christian, the diagnosis, whatever, whatever it is, one person, this comes into their life, they're a Christian, and they say, that's it. (laughs) God's got it in for me. He's mean. Why is he doing it? He doesn't care. And so in their pain, they run from God. But for another Christian, the hardship comes that whatever it is, and they recognize it as the loving discipline of their Father God. He's correcting me. He's preventing something in me. He's teaching me. This is an act of grace from God in my life. And so, through the real tears and real pain, I regard it as the loving work of God. I might hate the suffering, I might even recognize that it's evil, but I trust the good God who has brought this into my life. He is in control, and so I choose to submit myself to Him and His good discipline. So, how you think about this is so important. Pain will either drive you away from God or toward Him. It'll either be the excuse that you throw up as you throw off God, or it'll be the very thing that He uses to refine you. So don't waste your suffering. And in fact, there's one other thing you can see in this passage here that'll help us to do just that. Here's the final thing tonight, and it's this. He wants us to value discipline. He wants, to, wants us to see why it's so good. And you can see it there, verse, uh, verse 9. Have a look. He says, Moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? These human fathers, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, 
but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Now, he's still on this illustration of human fathers, and he says there's lots of similarities between human fathers and our Father God in heaven, but in verse 10, there's a little bit of a contrast. I don't know if you spotted it. Verse 10, our earthly fathers, they're disciplined for us. It's time-bound, it's for a little while only, and it's kind of as they thought best. They needed to use their fallen judgment to, to make the best job of it they could. Our earthly fathers, you've got to know this, they make mistakes. Parents make mistakes. You guys aware of that? Did you know parents make mistakes? They do. Sometimes their discipline is too harsh. Sometimes it's too loose and all over the place. Sometimes they just don't even know the facts and they make a bad call. I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of this, but when you're the person in charge, it is the worst thing in the world when you walk into the room and all the kids are screaming and you make a call and you put in place some discipline, but actually the villain gets away scot-free. It was the little brother, you didn't spot it and you disciplined the wrong kid. It is the worst thing. It's the worst thing when when you know that yourself. Not so with God. In God, we have a perfect heavenly Father. He will only ever have us endure opposition or hardship for our good, only ever for your good. He never gets it wrong. He never overreacts. He never, his intentions and his execution is perfect. It's never because he's lost his temper or he's drunk or he's not paying attention. He's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he loves you deeply and he's good And he's the one who holds your life in his hands. What a comfort. What a joy. But, sorry, did you notice there, verse 11, why? Why is this discipline so valuable? Painful at the time, but what does it produce? Verse 10, in order that we might share in his holiness, in God's holiness. Verse 11, it produces what? A harvest of righteousness and peace. It comes by being trained by this discipline. Now, the word there for trained is actually the word gymnasio, which is where we get our word gym from, which is a good picture, isn't it? The gym, it's the place where you go do hard stuff, no pain, no gain. Well, God, in his fatherly care of us, has put us in the gym of life and and its trials. It's unpleasant, but he's training us through it. He's growing us with that goal of holiness, peaceful righteousness, being like Jesus which is so valuable. Now, why is it so important, holiness? Have a look at verse 14. Here's a puzzling verse. Look at verse 14. He says, Make every effort to live in peace, again, like he's just mentioned, peace, live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Why is holiness important? Because without it, you won't go to be with God. Now, that's a, that's a confusing verse at first read. Now, you might hear that, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And you might, be go, you might go, I know what's going on here. I know what this holiness is. Without the holiness that Jesus gives me because he died on the cross to, to give me his perfect track record, without that holiness, no one will see God. Now, that's a good thought. That's a true thought. Without Jesus' death on the cross, you would never see God. You would never have holiness. True. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 teaches that. Have a look at Hebrews 10, verse 10. It says, 
And by this will, we have been made holy. Christians have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so by Jesus' death on the cross, Christians are given this position of being holy before God. True, it's a free gift of grace, absolutely. But the problem is, the Bible's got a couple of ways. The New Testament has a couple of ways of talking about holiness. Two different kind of categories that it talks about. One is this position of holiness, Hebrews 10.10, given as a free gift for what Jesus has done. But the other is this idea of progressive holiness, the ongoing fruit of living a life that's pleasing to God, growing personally in holiness. Now, you guys have a look at chapter 12, verse 14, have a look at the verses around it. What kind of holiness do you think he's talking about there? Chapter 12, verse 14, positional holiness, gifted by Jesus, or progressive holiness? What do you reckon? Have a look. I won't get you to call out for the sake of uh, embarrassing people, but I think it's talking about progressive holiness. The sentence starts, verse 14, with make every effort to go do this thing. This is a thing you do. Verse 11, the harvest of righteousness is a thing that we're trained into. The verses that follow, 15 to 17, there's a whole bunch of things that we're to do. Avoid sexual immorality. Get rid of godlessness like Esau. Verse 14, I think he's talking about our progressive holiness. But the tricky thing is, he says, without that, no one will see the Lord. And so what's going on here? It sounds like it's undermining the cross, undermining God's grace. Well, here it is. Both types of holiness positional holiness gifted to us in Jesus at the cross and progressive growth in holiness, both of them, I want to say, are non-negotiable, but in different ways. See, the positional holiness that Jesus gives you through His death on the cross, that's a non-negotiable. Without it, no one will be saved, no one will be right with God, because it's the very mechanism of our salvation, it's the thing that saves us. But progressive holiness, which I think is here, chapter 12, verse 14, it's a non-negotiable as well. But for a different reason, it's the necessary, expected fruit in any person who's a saved person. It's not the means of your salvation, Jesus does that, but progressive holiness is the expected outcome in every Christian's life. So look up on the screen here, I reckon this will make it clear for us, have a look here. Lots of people think this summarises Christianity. You know, progressive holiness, eventually, if you work hard of it, leads to the position of holiness before God. So we work really hard, we strive to be holy and do lots of good things that will please God, and eventually God says, that's it. You've, you've reached this position of holiness, you're good enough for me, come on into heaven now. Friends, that's, that's wrong. <laughs> it's categorically wrong. That's a one-way ticket to self-righteousness and, and hell. It gets it tragically, horribly backwards. That is not what the Bible is teaching here. Instead, this is what's going on, the second line there. Positional holiness will always lead to a life of progressive 
holiness. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus saves me. He gives me this position of being holy before God. I'm saved, 100% right with God, but the expected outcome in my life is fruit. It's the expected necessary fruit that I would grow more and more holy like the one who saved me. And so, friends, if you've been a Christian for years now and you have no desire for holiness, you you don't care, no hunger to be more like Jesus, no fruit in your life, well, then Jesus would ask, are you truly one of His at all? A progressive holiness doesn't save you, but one always leads to the other. And so, what does all this mean? (laughs) It means a lot of things, actually. But one thing it shows us is the incredible value of God's discipline. Because it's one of the crucial things that God uses to bring about growth in holiness, to harvest of righteousness in your life. It's how God grows this in you, through the necessary pain of the surgeon's scalpel, for your eternal good. Could you put a price on being more holy? What wouldn't you give up to be more holy? Be worth your job, your health, your money. If you could buy shares in holiness, how much would you put in? See, I suspect that our problem is that we often struggle to make sense of God's plans in our world and in our lives because we don't see how infinitely valuable Christ-likeness is, holiness is this harvest of righteousness, how much is it worth to you? You'll never understand what God's doing until you see how important holiness is. He says, without it, no one will see the Lord. That's how much it matters. And so, brothers, it would be a mistake to not take your personal holiness seriously. Do you? Do you take it seriously? Now, there's some great challenges that the writer gives us in the following verses that we don't have time to look at tonight. Verses 14 to 17, he he calls out sexual immorality, he calls out godlessness, worth pressing into another time. But praise God, because He cares about our holiness. He takes action to grow us and form us into the image of Christ, such that I might see the Lord. What a grace of God. Let's pray that God would do that in us, eh? Let's pray now. Oh, Father God, many of us here tonight are in the midst of of the hard times even now. And so, Father, for those who are going through discipline right now, your good hand in their lives, Father, I pray, please uphold them, Please strengthen them, please encourage them, please bring relief from whatever it is they're facing. But more than that, Father, we pray that you'd please use it. Bring a harvest of righteousness in the lives of those that your discipline is at work in, even now. And Lord, for those of us who are enjoying a good, an easy season in life now, Lord, please would we be thankful and not quick to forget the giver of all good gifts. And Father, we pray for us that you would prepare our hearts and our minds for times of trouble, which will come. Lord, help us not to forget the word in front of us tonight, but to hold on to it. Store it up in our hearts, we pray, that we may endure when the hard times come. Lord, we long to be holy 
and live lives that please you. And so please continue to work in our lives, we pray, that we might please our good and gracious God. Amen.